I'm not making a short-term profit and I'm not making a profit for myself. The vast, vast majority of the financial returns I will make are on behalf of society because it's society's pensions and savings mm. that I'm stewarding. What I'm trying to create and what I've almost kind of dedicated my life to in some ways is trying to create this virtuous circle where what impact is that capital going to have improving yep. those people's lives? And I'm trying to create that virtuous circle. Welcome to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast that confronts challenges to the Christian faith with hope. I'm Carmody, one of the podcast hosts, and this episode is part of our series on economics. We have a chat with Pete Gladwell, who is a senior manager in a UK pensions and savings company. I was moved to hear Pete talking about what his work means to him. Not a narrow vision of making more money for himself or his company, but an expansive vision of stewarding public and private goods so as to create the best alignment between them. Pete had really interesting answers to our questions about what you do as an investor when your values clash with those of your customers or other stakeholders, and how he lives his Christian values while working in the world of finance. I hope you find Pete as inspiring to listen to as I did. It's really great to have you on the show, Pete. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Barney. Great to be here. Nice to meet you, Carmody. Lovely to have you, Pete. Really, really great. Really looking forward to this conversation. So could you just start by telling us a little bit about um, the, the work that you do and the role that you have there? Sure. Well, I mean, I had an interesting prior life as a, a youth worker, and that was kind of funded by a church. But um, my current job, which I presume you're more interested in for the purposes of this podcast, is uh, working in the <laughs> finance. Uh, I mean, feel free, to, we can go back to youth work if you'd like, but uh, there are some interesting parallels. Uh, but uh, <laughs> my, my current role is in the UK's largest investment manager and uh, pension fund, and uh, I lead on our uh, investments that we make around the country in different places, uh, working a lot with government and local authorities, uh, universities, uh, NHS, and uh, things like the kind of sustainability and ESG functions that people have heard of that reporting to mm. me as well. So trying to assess the good or, or otherwise that we're having with our investments around, around the UK in particular, but increasingly around the world. So just a reminder for our listeners who might have forgotten, Pete, can you just tell us what does ESG stand for? Well, I hate the phrase, I have to admit. So, <laughs> so ESG <laughs> is environmental, social and governance. And it's this kind of catch-all phrase in the investment industry for the kind of negative or positive impacts that you're having in those three spheres. So I, I would tend to put, prefer ESHG, which includes kind of health and the, and the impact you're having on health and equality. But actually for me, right. I, all of that I find quite, it, for me, it's much more about genuinely trying to measure the impact you're having. So I, without getting too much into the detail of ESG, for me, it's, it, I prefer it as to think about it much more in an intentional way. So what's the good or or bad that we're having with every investment we're making and, and how do we measure that and how do we if it's a negative impact how do we mitigate that uh, hmm. great example just for example is one of the things we've we've done is invested a lot into providing more affordable housing which is really positive socially but every hmm. investment we make when we build a house has a negative impact in terms of the carbon emissions so hmm. we have to be honest about that and then how do we mitigate the carbon emissions the embodied carbon and the emissions in operation and you know, think about that and how we can reduce that. So that's just one small example in one small investment area where we're trying to think quite mm. holistically about what, what good or otherwise we're doing in the world. 
That's really interesting because there's a lot of different factors you have to measure at once then, and then you have to sort of give a different amount of weight to different things. How do you sort of weigh up the relative importance of things like emissions versus affordable housing for poor people? So, I mean, the, the general thrust is that you're looking for opportunities to both make the financial returns that one needs to make uh, or one's firm needs to make or the particular fund that you're investing in and then have the kind of social and environmental impacts that you uh, are looking to achieve and, and you're trying to maximise all of those. And uh, as I say, then yeah. there will be points like the affordable housing one I've just mentioned where there is a kind of a trade-off and there, particularly, you're trying to look at the the additionality. So, you know, again, just sticking with that example because it's quite an easy easy one. Every additional home we we create is generating uh, affordable home is generating a positive impact. Someone's uh, a family is able to move into an affordable home. They might have been stuck in temporary accommodation or a hotel or wherever. Now, you could argue well that home is generating a negative carbon emission, but being frank the home itself would probably have been built anyway. Mm. And so what we can do is try and mitigate that carbon impact by using less embodied carbon or by building more sustainable homes. And we are doing lots of things around all of those. But is that trying to see what difference we can make with our investment and, and what's in our gift uh, whilst recognising there are some things that you know are outside one's control? Because to be frank, at the moment, in the UK, every time you build a house, you will emit some carbon. Uh, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So being, being pretty honest and frank about that uh, as well. So, um, Pete, this is a very this is a very good uh, platform for me to ask a question that I've been sitting on for months. You talk about this the kind of alignment between, if you like, profit or, or finance goals measured in terms of profit and, and, and financial advantage, versus goals measured in terms of environmental or social or health goods. When I was reading some some months ago now, Mark Carney's great book, Value Values, sorry, and many times in the book he uses this expression that not only is climate addressing climate change in this instance or the deterioration of nature or whatever, not only is it a moral obligation or a moral imperative, it's also, and I quote, the greatest commercial opportunity of our time. And he uses this this kind of expression quite often. Not only is it a moral requirement or a moral good, but also it's a massive commercial opportunity. And I noticed, I read the book very carefully, and I noticed that nowhere did he spell out exactly what is the relationship between this not only but also. To put it differently, he doesn't directly address, and most at the level of kind of public-facing identities, most companies and firms don't, which is completely understandable, but it's not a criticism. He doesn't directly address this question, what is the relationship between moral goods and company goods or to put it differently in this case Carney is celebrating the fact that they overlap presumably they don't always overlap or they don't always overlap in quite the same way so I'm not asking only the kind of if you like trivial and technical question of how in a given instance do you play one off against the other but what do you think as a kind of informed and conscientious practitioner what do you think is the if you like the deep relationship between these two types of goods and how do you think about that that tension because i'm sure it often is a tension yeah so and it's it there's another dynamic to it that's really important in my world to, to gather which is i'm not making a short-term profit and i'm not making a profit for myself most the vast vast majority of the financial returns i will make 
are on behalf of society because it's society's pensions and savings mm. that I'm stewarding. And so what I'm trying to create and what I've almost kind of dedicated my life to in some ways is trying to create this virtuous circle where people's pensions and savings that are almost guaranteed to exist. I mean, you know, even the most adamant trade unionist will insist Admit that, his, that members, we need them. his or her members have a yes. pension. So, you know, you've <laughs> yeah. created the capital. Then yeah. the question is, what impact is that capital going to have improving yeah. those people's lives? And I'm trying to create that virtuous circle. And so that yeah. means there's, there's, there are areas that I won't invest because that uh, tension is too great. And I can see that I could make the return I need to make, but morally I'd be compromising. And likewise, there are areas I won't invest because morally I might be doing something amazing, but it's basically charitable giving. And I might do that with my own personal money, but I won't be doing it with someone's pension because they need to rely yes. on that when they retire. And yeah. so I'm trying to find that sweet spot where both both are true, which which is not mm. easy. And you know, clearly there are trade-offs, and I'm not but but that's my my goal with by with the, the investments that I'm seeking. But I guess you can always find that sweet spot somewhere. Like if there's lots and lots of options out there there will be some always where you can find that overlap. Often the the way that we're having more of a positive impact is not so much just making a decision between one or the other. It's actually intentionally going out to try and create those when they don't exist because finance yes. has become lazy and sat in an office like I am in the city of London and waited for bankers to approach it with opportunities that will then be very banker shaped and will generate XYZ financial return that won't necessarily be performing that social role. So that the purpose driven uh, and kind of intentional elements of, of my role and, and where I think this, this needs to go is that finance kind of gets out the shiny office in the city, goes to Sunderland or Newcastle or Grimsby or, you know, uh, meets people who need affordable housing in London and says, right, how can we serve you and create those structures through which we can invest people's pensions and savings to have that that opportunity mm. that, that's kind of i'm not saying we always achieve that but that's where i'd like it to to go and we, we've got examples of it being successful so this is a very interesting reframing maybe of my question or of how i've experienced the language functioning before which is you let's let's take you as an example um pete and your work with with pensions really the situation is that you have a range of goods that are at stake in all the decisions you make. Some of them are public in the sense of concerning everybody because they're to do with climate or they're to do with the provision of housing or whatever. And some are to do with your direct stakeholders, so the pensions, the, the people who have the pensions invested with you. But in every case, they're genuine, in the broader sense, social goods. And your task, if you like, the creative task, this is a question, right? The creative task is to actually engineer harmonies between these different goods. Not engineer in the kind of manipulative sense, but to, to actually creatively seek investment um, processes or, or mechanisms or opportunities where these goods all overlap. Yeah, and, and how we do that and the kind of, actually, you know, we're going to come on to this later, I'm sure, but there's a lot of values that are important in how you do that as well. It, it's a kind of making that relationship led, driven by values and trust when you're going to talk to, you know, the leaders in Newcastle or, you know, even, even the point of caring about people enough to go and create those structures or intentionally try to drive good through investment. Um, yeah. I think kind of faith or, you know, religion or whatever you want to call it actually has a lot to say about that because this isn't just about the kind of, 
end goal of the product you're trying to achieve or, or the you know kind of uh, legal structure you're trying to create also the very way through which you do that i think is uh, you know faith has a lot to, to say about as well in the sense are you saying it's in the sense that you ask whether or not people trust you that you're making those investments with their own best interests at heart um yeah i suppose there is an element of that but there's also a, a kind of you know a lot of this work involves understanding places understanding the need for investment in a in a place uh trusting the uh leader of newcastle city council or the mayor of bristol or you know trusting the government minister that you're talking to to you know to work collaboratively with you so that you can bring finance in to have uh, for good in in their place or in their sector or whatever it might be so a lot of the kind of might want to kind of call them kingdom values. I don't know if that's, you know, <laughs> whatever mm. technology we're using is and and relying on not trying to do that in your own strength as well. There's something really important about that. I suppose I'm just pointing out that I think ethics and faith actually speak quite a lot to where we're trying to get to in terms of creating a better form of capitalism if we're going to stick with this system for, for many years to, to come. Mm. That's very evocative and interesting. Mm. Yeah. So, so would you say, Pete, that you see yourself in your role as a guardian? I don't mean in the kind of self-promoting sense, but in the responsibility sense, a guardian of public goods, many kinds of public goods, and you're really administering public goods. You're administering people's money, both for their savings and benefit in the future, and also for the communities where the money will be spent. Or, yeah, am I understanding you rightly? Yeah, you can probably go further than that to say, you know, this this is about kind of finance ushering in the kingdom rather than being somehow distinct from the kingdom. There's something about finance, you know, actually benefiting the lives of those who are the kind of most marginalised and vulnerable in society. And, and finance yeah. can do that or it can choose not to do that. And the question yeah. is, will we will we allow it to do that or will we leave it in the hands of those who might care less about the, the yeah. most vulnerable? Yeah, that's really interesting because I guess finance doesn't actually have the reputation of caring about the ben uh, benefiting other people, right? Finance has the reputation of being full of people who care just about lining their own pockets. Is that fair mm. to say? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think, it, but the the irony is, you, you know, you look at firms like this one. A lot of them were created, in, if you go back, you know, until eighteen eighty or whatever it was, they were created by people coming together to provide for widows and orphans when one of their profession had been taken ill or you know it was a kind of almost a, a mixture of some kind of crowdfunding and some kind of yes uh, a thing to bring their savings together to take care for each, of each other's families and actually you know if you go back far enough into the, the kind of British financial institutions many of them have that those kind of roots and then they became these huge great you know things in shiny towers that existed certainly in the run-up to the financial crash you could, it's easy to argue existed almost for their own good and yeah. became very much associated with how much money can we make out of society and extract from society. Um, yeah. And so a lot of this is actually about trying to reclaim that role of finance as serving society. Um, and, you know, again, mm. I think it's something about kind of servant leadership that is, you know, it's pretty biblical that has probably been lost. But if we bring it back into finance, then it becomes a better, a better place to be. Mm. That's really, really I cool. It is very cool. So a few years ago, Peter, I did a lot of work with um, CAFOD. Do you know CAFOD? I've heard, yeah, it's the Catholic uh, Development, right? 
Yeah, it's basically that the, the Catholic Church has a kind of development. It sounds a bit sinister to say it's a development arm, but it's essentially the bit of the church that is concerned with with development in the very broader sense, with social good and the church. I think it is the Catholic that. equivalent of tear fund. <laughs> yeah, but except for the fact that it's actually global, so every country has one. They're known globally as Caritas, Caritas International. But in our in in um, England and Wales, it's called CAFOD, which stands for the Catholic Agency for Overseas Development. And I I have done. Lots of work with them in the past on development goals, specifically the idea of or, or the question how you measure success as a development organisation, particularly, which has led to, for me, to to a lot of interest in how organisations measure success more widely. What counts as success for them, which is in a way what we're talking about, right? Is when you're doing your job well, what does that look like? What are you what are you kind of scoring yourself on, as it were? And one of the really distinctive languages of success in CAFOD, which this project that I was on helped to kind of bring out and refine, is very similar to what you've just been saying. Let's put this a question. Is this similar to what you've been saying? Or how would you comment on this? That relationships are not just a means to certain development ends, that actually being in constructive, reciprocal and mutually affirming relationships with different people and organisations is an end. That is actually one of the things, maybe even the thing in the language of CAFOD, certainly, that is the thing that tells you whether you're doing development right, is if the relationships are making everybody flourish. How, how do you kind of think about that in terms of, you know, finance having the public good or kingdom values or is that part of what you're getting at? Yeah, I think, and it's funny, isn't it? There's a kind of link to the Amartya's then capability approach there, the idea that you're empowering people to have agency. A lot of the way I kind of think about my work is, I mean, pick an example, I happen to know Bristol. My firm stewards about 220,000 people's uh, pensions and savings in Bristol, just to pick that one city as an example. And so uh, if we're extracting their pensions and savings out and not using it to build up their place, then we're not developing their capability and uh, and uh, agency. If we're mm-hmm. reinvesting their pension savings back into meeting their need and uh, the need for investment locally, that's a good thing and part of building their capability. But it's exactly to your point, the best way we can do that is by working with them to understand the local need for investment and you know whether it's investing in health or investing in more affordable housing or uh, driving kind of biodiversity or whatever it might be the last thing I want to be doing is is putting myself in a position of power where I impose my own values on Bristol Mm. the best way I can be doing that is by empowering local people by saying by understanding as, as kind of deeply as I can through conversation relationship What's the need for investment locally? And then taking their pensions and savings that we're stewarding and reinvesting it back into their place uh, in order to kind of drive that, uh, enhance that capability and, and and provide that empowerment. And and that's that mm. kind of virtuous. So, yeah, that's, that, I think that's there's a so lot interesting. In, and a lot, yeah, and, and that development mindset I do find really helpful in, in some of the kind of what we're trying to do. We, we have a whole framework that we use to kind of, uh, benchmark the impact we're having in places, for example, and a lot of it draws on the UN SDGs and some of that thinking around, you know, the, uh, the kind of approaches we've just been discussing, because I think they're, they're actually super relevant to investment if you're going to do it well. Mm. That's really, really interesting. Can I just ask, you've talked a bit about kingdom values and about sort of servant leadership in the finance sector that actually is there to benefit society rather than to just extract from society. Have you 
always found it easy to have those values and goals in the work that you do? Or have you encountered various obstacles and difficulties in trying to embody those kingdom values in the finance sector? That's a really shrewd, shrewd question. No, I, I don't find it easy, uh, to be honest. I think there's a number of things that play against it. Finance itself, I think it's becoming less the case as we bring a more diverse work, workforce into finance, thankfully, and that's changed over the kind of 15 years I've been here. But finance has historically had a very kind of machismo, what's that, Leonardo DiCaprio film? Uh, <laughs> oh, Wolf of Wall Street. Thank yeah. you, Wolf of Wall Street. I knew you two would know, and me. <laughs> anyway, um, that kind of culture, I mean, thankfully, the place I work has never, you know, been anything like as extreme as Wolf of Wall Street. But, you, but there's that kind of, um, that culture has been somewhat good. And somewhat endemic in this kind of city of London, and even if kind of rippling beneath the surface. And then you know there is a, you get paid large amounts of money, and that that feeds this kind of superiority complex as well. And so I'm fortunate to work in a company that has quite key values and principles that do work against some of those under, negative undercurrents. But mm. it's really important to acknowledge that they exist, and it's and it's easy if you're not careful to be kind of swept along with them um as i say the promising thing for me is i feel like the tide has turned peter finance generally is putting more emphasis on its impact recognizing it needs to be clear on its role in society i mean the credit crunch uh, in 2007 was a real kind of wake-up call for a lot of people in finance um the rise of generation z is much more aware of these kind of issues are much less uh, you know, holds much less truck with simply kind of making money for the sake of making money. But no, I wouldn't say it's been easy. And I've, I'm definitely not holding myself up as being a perfect example either. I've made plenty of mistakes as I try to kind of forge that path. Can, can I ask you, um, Pete, about the, you, you, you've talked about values, about the values that are driving these kinds of decisions, right? Or these kinds of moves and priorities and relationships with one of the values. And then that the, the the, the importance of attending to the values of the people whose money you're investing. I'm really interested in the concept of value for all kinds of reasons, but partly because it's very prominent in kind of business speak now that companies have values and governments have values and everybody has values. What's not often explicit in these uses of the term, which is not a criticism either necessarily, but just, just descriptive at this point, is where these values are being gotten from. Or to put it differently, what happens if there are communities of people with different values? So in your instance, for example, you're dealing with, let's say, this community in Bristol, but maybe for the sake of argument, you're also dealing with a community in, I don't know, Kenya, where social values may be significantly different. And of course, as a philosopher, I'm very interested in what happens when people have different values, why that happens, what people do about that. And of course, it's one thing at the level of personal values where I might choose to, I don't know, be a vegan and you might not. But that really only concerns what I'm doing with my life and what you're doing with your life. It becomes much more complicated, obviously, when very, very large scale, high impact decisions and often only semi visible decisions are being made in accordance with certain values. So I guess the question is two questions which are related. Number one, as far as you're concerned as a practitioner, where do the values come from? for you, for the company? And number two, how do you, in practice, negotiate genuine clashes of value? Yes. Yeah, really good question. So I think the first thing that I would really stress to people listening is if you care about 
having an impact in the world, come and get involved. And you have the ability to be involved in finance, come and get involved in finance because your personal values will impact thousands of people's lives for better or for worse. That until the structure of you know capitalism as we know it fundamentally changes, uh, you can have an impact in politics. I'm not denying that you can have an impact in church leadership, but you can also have a huge impact. And I, I wouldn't for a moment pretend that the transparency of this organization is such that um, it's purely democratic or every time we're looking at making an investment decision, we phone up all 8 million pensioners and say, do you think this is a good one? No, we, uh, our organization for better or for worse is decided that those 8 million people have uh, delegated a certain amount of investment making this responsibility to me and people in the team. And so my values will be multiplied out by the investments that the, the finance that they've given me to steward and yeah. is that kind of classic uh philosophical thing isn't it about the kind of the bus driver drives a bus over the edge of a ravine 50 people die well you know was that really fair well they just happened to be on his bus but there is definitely an uh, <laughs> forgive me for the the analogy but there's a certain amount of if you become get to a senior position in finance you will be changing people's lives for better or for yeah. worse so and that's, that's quite a good vivid image why you get involved um, to keep the bus on the road and ideally yeah. drive it to a good place. But I think there's there's a kind of second element to it for me, which is because we value and because I value those things I mentioned earlier around empowerment and places and fundamentally people and the importance of people, first and foremost, changing lives and creating places where people can thrive, then you do look for uh, trying to avoid imposing or, or, or one's own value is to seek the values of, of the communities into which you're investing you know hmm. your example would be a great one so as i mentioned earlier it's about not going into pick another place let's say pool and me telling pool what it needs a pool in dorset now sorry i'm moving to another another uh, <laughs> me not telling pool endorsement what i value in terms of creating a, a row of vegan restaurants because i'm vegan it's actually kind of that point we discussed earlier about trying to understand what the local uh, people value and bringing out that and empowering their own uh, values and vision for their place. That's sort of a meta value. It's sort of, yeah, asking people what they care about and then caring, care, choosing to care about that for them. Mm. Yeah, but I do. I, I think there's a really important point in here somewhere, which is that people can choose whether the, their pensions and savings are stewarded by us or by... Aviva or by Lloyd's or so you should be holding us to account and you mm. know that I should be being held account to account for the decisions I'm making and that's part of the responsibility of the role I have and it's part of where my values may or may may, may be kind of uh, you know held to account and rejected at the end of the day people could take all the money out of my firm and say well I don't like your values I actually like the values of this person but the most important thing is make sure you agree with the values of the firm stewarding your pension <laughs> so because they mm. are doing something so, yeah. so Pete, I'm I'm gonna be. Um, Please be controversial. Please, yeah, gonna, you said yeah. twice or now. I don't mean that criticism. Please feel free to be critical. I'm at least going to be in a, a an annoying uh, philosopher with all the luxury of not having to sit in the hot seat, right? So that's the uh, the kind of caveat of what I'm about to say. So here's the philosopher's question: One of the things that we're trying to bring out, I think, in this series, is the way in which there's no such thing as a neutral economics. And by economics, I'm including the way that we organize the markets, the way that we do business, the way that we do finance, the way that we design money, all of these things, right? 
There's no such thing as a neutral economics in the sense that economics isn't just a sort of, despite all the pretensions of the 19th century, it's not just an empirical quantitative discipline, right? It's a discipline that reflects the kind of values and social mm. ideals of the designers of it. And in that sense, it's completely contingent. You know, we actually have a choice over the kind of economics we have. It's not like the laws of physics, which you don't have much choice over. The economic laws are laws which are created by human institutions and human patterns and, and so on. And there's loads more we could say about that contingency. But here, I just having noted that contingency, my, my kind of question based on what you just said is, there's an obvious attractiveness to saying that as a, as a company at whatever scale, your goal is, if you like, to listen to the values of communities that you're serving and try to respond to more than that, trying to serve the values that they actually have. With a global firm, and possibly even not with a global mm -hmm. firm, but let's just take the global example to kind of make this clear. You may well be serving communities where, to take sort of just off the top of my head some sort of hackneyed examples, there may be communities where very little value is attached to female education, for example, or very little value is attached to maternal health, or very little value is attached to for example, environmental sustainability, or, and I think this is a particularly interesting mm -hmm. example, which is becoming more and more important, where there's a very strong emphasis on the overwhelming priority of the collective over the individual, as in, for example, China. Mm. Not wanting to simplify, but historically, right, China is a, a culture and civilization that has subordinated the individual mm. to the collective and would regard Western individualism mm. as, in fact, bad for everybody, not even a utilitarian good, let alone a good in principle. Mm. So we're talking about a global situation in which, and certainly in the past years, there's actually been a deterioration of consensus around value. So how do you negotiate, you as an individual practitioner, mm. or how do you think that a, a firm like yours should, should or does negotiate genuine clashes of value? At some level, you're on mm. the very horns of that, really much more directly than someone like me. How do you think about that? So I have to say my personal values, which obviously are heavily influenced by my faith, don't clash with my firm's values very often. It's, it's rare, actually, because the firm, I, there's a reason I choose to work here, which is I like the ethos and the culture of the, uh, the firm. And there, But you're absolutely right. There is, I suppose that's what I was trying to get at earlier by there will be certain, but, you know, the classic example, just to potentially get myself in hot water and bring this bang up to date is certain parts of the states are very clear that they don't like so i think DeSantis, for example has been pretty clear they don't believe in esg investing they don't believe in sustainable investing as caricaturing and please DeSantis, when you listen to no, this we, we, we interviewed we, we've had it right on the podcast who, who Pete, you can you can caricature investing. freely yeah. <laughs> Forgive me uh, if I've misrepresented your views. Love to talk more about it. But as I understand it, he, uh, uh, he, he thinks that finance should be more purely about financial return and less focused on the kind of environmental and social impact. And, you know, for better or for worse, I would disagree with him on that. I think it's, as I've hopefully made clear, I think finance has a huge potential to, to have a positive or negative impact in people's lives. And if that means that we don't do business because he wants me to go out or he wants to entrust you know his state's multi-billion pound pension fund to me but he says pete you can have that business so long as you promise me you'll never care about the social or environmental impact you have 
I just say, sorry, Ron, we can't do that. You know, it's really important to me that we consider these points. And so uh, we're not going to do that business together. So I suppose that's what I'm trying to, I, I can see that, uh, uh, that that's kind of what I meant by that, that mandate has been entrusted to me by people that choosing to entrust their pensions to us or not. And uh, kind of being quite- Yeah, absolutely. What my own standards are. And, and as I say, kind of some of the frameworks we've developed to try and uh, kind of uh, clarify those a bit similar to the ones you mentioned in CAFOD. Um, I think yeah. I really so mm. that's that's really interesting. Can you be a little bit more explicit about the way that your faith informs your values? You talked about kingdom values in general. That's a reference, presumably, to Jesus preaching the kingdom of God, and you see yourself as helping to bring something of the values of the kingdom of God. Like, how does your faith very explicitly inform these values? Oh, I mean. I, I so I'm a big believer of in you know the idea that faith should you know the the yeast should work through the dough and your faith should be affecting everything that you're doing in in your life including the world of finance and so for me it informs everything from the goals that we're trying to achieve um, and we know we've spent quite a bit of time discussing those but we can kind of go into those in more detail all the way through to how we do those. And, and we talked a bit about that as well in terms of the partnerships we create with people. Um, but but also, and, and bits that I've been less successful in over time in terms of how I kind of conduct myself in the office. And, you know, it's all very well having these hugely kind of grandiose plans for where you want to take the world of finance and capitalism. But are you being kind to your PA or, you know, are you, uh, you know, <laughs> putting people yeah, first yeah. and doing the kind of values of, of Jesus in terms of, um, how you act, you know, with your with your. Well, we can talk about virtues as well, just about the, the the way your character shines forth in every aspect. Yeah, of work. yeah. And yeah. I hope my colleagues, you know, sat behind this in this wall behind me would would uh, call me the Jesus of the office. But I wonder, I worry, I'm making <laughs> sure uh, at times. But, but that again, it draws it to another. One. It's it's kind of that, you know. I think faith has a lot to say. My faith has a lot to say about the importance of looking for the spirit empowering you and transforming you and changing you as a person uh, to try and help you to run that race set before you. And so for me, even in terms of when I'm trying to make some of these quite important investments and hopefully do good in the world, you know, to create that kind of place where we're creating the financial returns where we need and the, and the uh, social impact that we want to have, uh, even that I think you'll only do really through being empowered and relying on uh, God to help you rather than hoping to do it in your own strength. So even that hope, you know, you can see kind of how faith informs relate, uh, in relation to that as well. Mm. Yeah, that's really inspiring. So we, on a previous episode, we had a really fascinating conversation with, with this guy, Robert Netsley. He's the CEO of Inspire Investing, which is a now very large scale Christian investment company in the States, which is very much of the Ron DeSantis mind. Um, in terms of its kind of policy approach to things like ESG and that sort of thing, um, driven by kingdom values and furthering God's glory in the world and so on. And I noticed in that context how very different, I mean, this is totally trivial, I'm sure, to most of our listeners, but um, worth, worth saying again, how differently Christianity can work out in different, according to different interpretive traditions, right? That for this guy, uh, for Robert... Investing in fossil fuel companies, for example, or very, very carefully not investing in certain kinds of uh, in, in companies that might sponsor certain kinds of reproductive rights is a very, very direct 
obligation following and he talks about biblical, biblical principles right yeah. biblical principles biblical values tell me if this is this is a fair interpretation you you talking about kingdom values and the way you've been speaking about this seems to me to be a a kind of tradition of christian social responsibility that is more characteristic of the history of welfareism in our country christian welfareism in our country particularly our country being the this, uk sorry thank you the yeah. uk particularly you know tr traditions around famously nonconformists of, t of taking social responsibility as the vision in the gospel as opposed to individual i try not to um do personally wrong things but i more or less just let the rest of the world get on with it how do you identify the sources, the particular sources of your reading or interpretation of what kingdom values are? Yeah, very, very good question. I mean, I think for me, it's it is a mixture of I'm sure my upbringing and uh, you know, like Barney, I'm from a kind of evangelical nonconformist. Would that be the right yeah. word? Yeah, as you say, or free free evangelical. But but what's interesting about that is that it's British evangelical because Robert Netsley would also call himself an evangelical, but he's American evangelical. Yeah, I, I suppose I, um, and I, I would say I'm kind of heavily informed by, you know, the, the Bible. There's a lot in the Bible that really relates to my day-to-day -day work, whether it's the Proverbs and some of the wisdom in there or, you know, whatever you do, do it heartily as to mm -hmm. the Lord. You know, there's there's so much in the Bible that relates to, uh, I, I think I've already quoted at least two or three Bible verses to you in the context of this conversation, just because they're at the forefront of my mind when I'm thinking about yeah, absolutely. Kind of values and, and you know, what drives me and, and what kind of motivates me. So, yeah, so I, I don't know if I'm kind of, I have enough grasp of theological history to give you my... I know that it is central to, to, to me and, uh, and, and to kind of what the life I'm trying to, to live out. Well, one of the mm. things I notice about the way you describe kingdom values is that com compared with Robert Netsley, Robert Netsley was very much focused on what those values mean you can and can't or should or shouldn't invest in. Whereas for you, Pete, you've talked about kingdom values in regard to that, but also in regard to the kind of person you want to be and how you want to behave in your own character. And that's one big difference, I think. And then another difference is that you, you have a more expansive understanding of what kinds of values you want to promote. So you're interested in what, on, in what people in Bristol care about and in supporting and promoting that. And you think that that comes from what it means to be a Christian, to empower people to be the kinds of people God created them to be in their own culture and in their own context, rather than imposing your own culture and context on them. That's another difference that I notice. That's, yeah. I think, a very fundamental difference, actually. In terms of listening to the, to, to the two of you side by side, Robert Netsley was much more a kind of, these are the biblical principles, and this is how we, if you like, um, enforce them using finance as an instrument. I don't mean that in a critical way, but he was very much like, we need to use money to further these biblical principles that come out of the Bible. And your language is much more along the lines of, let's pay attention to what people quote on the ground actually want what's actually important to them and you consider yourself as being mandated to serve them as they are yes i mean but but as i say i would also not not without any limits uh so mm. there are still things i would personally feel uncomfortable uh investing people's pensions and savings in if, if i had the choice because you know if half of cardiff suddenly decided they really wanted a strip club i wouldn't be the person funding that myself. Uh, forgive me, Cardiff, for picking on you. I just <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't we really avoid that. 
so yeah, so it's not kind of parking my own personal uh, conscience at the door. But again, to be frank, the company I work for wouldn't be funding that anyway. So it's also, there is a kind of, I think that's kind of what I'm saying by, about the importance of people choosing, if, if people are thinking about going into finance, choosing a firm with values and, and kind of priorities that they align with broadly, but also the potential to build on that to have more impact, I think is is really is really important because it, it would be quite difficult if the firm was desperate to fund strip clubs. And I personally was not a, a big advocate of those. Not a strip uh, club. Yeah, so, so, so there are limits. You, you, it is one of your values to promote other people's values, but you can't do that to the point where your own worldview of what makes for human flourishing is violated by what those people want. Yes. Yeah, and that, that can't be avoided. I don't think anybody can avoid that. Personally, mm. that's where I'm at mm. personally. Again, I've, let's regather in 10, 20 years' time and uh, I'm sure it all See where we are. All of us will have progressed in our thinking and I, I hope I've become wiser by then. So <laughs> Absolutely. So one of the really interesting issues that came up in the conversation with Robert Netsley was the question of the, the huge global influence of the prosperity gospel as an interpretation of kingdom values, right? So looking at kind of global Christianity, we're talking about a third of the world, right? The, the, and mentioning the diversity of different views there are about what biblical values or kingdom values are. And prosperity gospel is a hugely significant influence. What, what do you think about that? What's, what's the significance of, of personal wealth or indeed of national wealth in your understanding of your responsibility or of God's call or of God's blessing? How do you think about that as a person who's working with money every day? Wow. I wasn't expecting this to go in that direction. That's a good one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have to confess, I'm not a huge fan of the kind of, again, forgive me for caricaturing prosperity gospel because there may well be good elements of it. It's just the, the way I've come to experience it has been quite negative in terms of setting people up to believe that if only they're Christians, then, you know, life will never go wrong for them and they'll be uh, overflow, awash with money forevermore. And, you know, I, I don't really kind of think that's what the Bible says. I don't, that's not my, my personal kind of conviction either. So I, I've not really applied that to the world of investment. Does your work operate out of the belief that if you make investments that accord with kingdom values that will make your business automatically more prosperous yeah so that's that is a very internet interesting and personal question because there's a lot of discussion about right, this, putting it yeah. uh, in the in the investment industry at the moment and and they would probably call it esg but it, it's almost shorthand <clears throat> for yeah i mentioned this it's catch-all phrase i'm not a huge fan of but about kind of doing good so yeah. Uh, one thing we really haven't touched on enough, but is really important to me, is is there are many different types of finance, and using the right finance to meet the right need in society is a really important kind of moral judgment and, and an ability to do better or worse by society in in finance. So, what do I mean by that? If you are wanting to change, let's just say a. a deprived seaside village in Britain, and there are many of them, as you may be aware, but the coast are some of the most deprived areas of the UK, for the better, you are going to need long-term patient money to basically invest for the longer term to see that place come good and to create mm. that thriving place and improve people's lives. If you want to dive in there and make a quick buck and get out quickly, uh, you will, I'm sure, manage to, so you can knock up some yuppie flats and be gone tomorrow, but that won't create the kind of good that we want to create and empower that place and do all the things we talked about. So 
So the type of money, the longer term versus the shorter term, the type of return you need to make are all uh, really important. What, what do I mean? What, what's the relevance of that to your uh, question? Well, for me, it it's, has every relevance because if you're investing for the kind of longer term, then investing in things that society needs that will serve society you will create a better risk-adjusted return over the longer term because society will pay you because you've created something that society needed. And so you will get that benefit in terms of a commercial return as well as the kind of social and uh, environmental benefit. But if your business model is purely about making money as quickly as you can and you know, you're trying to maximise your returns over three years, at which point you've got to get out, then often the type of investments we're talking about that put other priorities first will not create the better return on a kind of pure cash on cash. Well, how many times did you multiply your money type basis? Because your type of money is fundamentally wrong for the need that you're seeking to meet. And so there's a really important dimension in all of this that I, I worry we haven't had to, done justice of, of, and maybe it's another podcast, which is it's not just investing in these kind of things, it's trying to get the right money to meet the need and, and also not putting the wrong type of money in to meet society's needs where that would create a negative social externality and you won't get that um, mix that we're aiming for, which is that the, the finance has both the financial return it needs to create and the positive social benefit. Uh, mm. But in the right situation with the right type of money, you can get that. I thoroughly be uh, believe that you can get a better risk-adjusted return by investing along these lines. I worry that's that such an important... We might have to go back into it in more detail another time. But it's such an important issue. Yeah. Yeah. And a very from the outside, a very invisible issue, you know, to people who aren't in finance, finance tends to just appear as a monolith. And it's quite important to see that it's a lot more diverse and subtle than that. Yeah. So you'll see lots of funds that are labelled kind of impact investing funds, or there's a couple of them in London, I need to be careful what I say, so I don't get sued at the moment, but which are going under because on the surface of them, they look like they were really, you know, they're investing in housing for homeless families for example, but fundamentally, they didn't have the right financial structure. They were looking to make a return too quickly over too short a period. And they may have been doing good in terms of buying homes for homeless families, but they were on leases that were totally unsustainable, or they paid too much for the homes, or they put too much uh, weight on the local uh, housing association that couldn't cope with the financial responsibility it was given. And so the financial structuring was undoing the very social impact that they claimed to be mm. seeking to have. I mean, that's very, very interesting. It, it, it seems to me to be an, just an example of how Christian wisdom can actually inform and transform the way a company or a business operates so that it's thinking in the long term rather than just in the short term, right? Yeah, but it's it's a really key point to, to for me in terms of answering your question around can you generate superior financial returns through doing the right thing? It's mm. a kind of yes, but. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Really appreciate some of your answers. All right. Really Thanks something. so much, Pete. Cheers, Pete. Okay, I hope it was interesting. Thank you for listening to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast produced in collaboration with The Tablet. If you liked this episode, then do subscribe to hear more like it in the future. For now, goodbye. Goodbye.